Hey, good morning, Freeway, and uh, I want to add my welcome to that of Sandy's this morning. Uh, great to have you joining us here, streaming uh, into your lounge rooms, and it was great to catch up with Archer and Owie and Violet and Ferdinand. We know that uh, we've got the Bevises joining us and the Cooks are, are online. Got my good mate Suzanne tuning in this morning. It's great to uh, know that she's checked in. We got Robin, Krista, and Mark Wee uh, checking in with us today, and Pete and Lynn, the Beechings and the Bickertons, and a whole host Tim and Trish uh, are out there. So great that uh, we can share this with you guys this morning. And anyone else I haven't mentioned, uh, part of the Freeway family or, or tuning in from elsewhere, uh, it's certainly great to be able to share uh, with you this morning. Hey, why don't we pray, and then we're going to get into this uh, wonderful passage from Luke's Gospel. Our loving Father, uh, we thank you uh, for your love towards us, uh, that it's unconditional in its nature, uh, that it's planned in its application, that you prepare us for us, not impose it on us. Uh, this week in particular, uh, we pray for those who have been affected by war. Uh, war is not something that's ever just isolated uh, to a battlefield, it, it comes home, it finds its way into families, it continues to harm and kill long after it's been consigned to a page in history. Uh, we think of those affected by the tragic loss of uh, four Victorian police officers earlier this week, just sad beyond words. And we pray for healing of the scars of war, we pray for comfort, support and justice to emerge in this tragedy. We continue to pray for those who are who are searching for vaccines and answers to this pandemic. Uh, in your mercy, would you give wisdom and insight? We're, we're thankful for science and medicine and for minds that you have given us to understand and apply these things. We hold in prayer those who are affected uh, for recovery. We hold in prayer those who are caring for patients and those that are working and working in high-risk environments. We pray for support and safety. We lift anxious and frightened hearts. Uh, that you would bring comfort through support to everyone in this situation. Now, as we turn uh, to your word this morning, would your spirit remind our hearts that standing over all of this is a God of grace who is not frustrated by the events of history but moves in them in ways to tell us that he is real, that he is compassionate, and that he is preparing our hearts to not just receive our salvation but to live in it and enjoy it uh, in all the experiences of life. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, last week we began our, our series in Luke and we looked at how Luke was writing this gospel that we might have certainty about our faith and our faith in Jesus for eternal life, uh, an undeniable, unshakable, unchanging, absolute, secure reality in our hearts so that we might have uh, faith that's like a mountain range uh, and not merely a passing cloud. Now Luke begins, this is the beginning of Luke's orderly account of the events and the things that was accomplished among the people. And he begins his account with the events surrounding uh, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, who God will use to prepare the hearts of people for the coming of his salvation uh, in Jesus. Luke presents his story to us in a couple of contexts. He presents us to us in the context of history, in the context of a king. He presents it to us in the human context, in the context of this priest and his wife. He presents it to us in redemptive context, in, in this child, that, that this child John. Uh, he presents it to us in the context of faith, in the response of 
uh, Zechariah. And overarching over all of this is in the context of a sovereign God. Well, firstly, King uh, Luke speaks to us in a historic context. He records things not merely in abstract events, but he places them uh, in their local settings, uh, in the settings of, of Palestinian history. And he writes to us, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, which lets us know that we're in a time frame that ended around 4 BC, roughly around there. And Matthew's gospel actually records for us the death of Herod. So we know that we're in that end uh, phase of this King Herod's rule. Herod was a king that history paints as a capable military and political uh, tactician. He was a lover of lavish building pro- programs. He, he restored and, and expanded the, the temple there. But but he was also a cruel and manipulative and, and oppressive. He used oppressive measures to uh, to maintain his throne and his rule. The Bible paints him as an insecure king who responded poorly to the news about Jesus, who was born king of the Jews. Luke's point is that the events in this story are just as real, just as historic as this king, Herod, uh, this client king, Herod the Great. Luke lets us know that at this point in history, there was a priest. Now, there's nothing sort of absolutely uh, unusually noteworthy about a priest. Uh, Luke tells us that he was part of the division of Abijah, which was actually the 10th division of about 24 divisions uh, divided up there of that included roughly 18,000 priests. So this priest is just one of 18,000 other priests who made up these 24 divisions that would go and twice a year do one week service at the temple. However, this priest, unlike all other priests, gets singled out by God to participate uh, in his fresh new work of redemption, to be a part of salvation history. And as is Luke's way, he fills in the personal details that are important to this story, to this story of redemption. This priest is Zachariah, and his wife is called Elizabeth. And she, Luke notes, is a descendant of Aaron. So she herself is the daughter of a priest. Now, priests were expected to marry uh, Israelite virgins. However, to have a wife of priestly stock, of priestly descent, was considered to have a special blessing. So we kind of got like a, a, su- uh, a spiritual super couple in the making. But we're tapping in at the end of their life. And Luke tells us that they're an elderly couple, both advanced in years. Zachariah says in verse 18 that he is old and that his wife is well past her use by date. It's kind of the cheeky language of marriage or maybe it's just the statement of facts. And we learn later on that they live out in the hill country, outside of the city. That's where Mary will go and visit them. So they're country folk with many years of marriage and service under their belt. And Luke lets us know an important detail about, about this priest and his wife. They are both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all his commandments and the statutes of the Lord. They've both been active and committed in their ministry. They've both sought to live their lives intentionally uh, to honour God. That's been their practice. That's been their way of life. They're not perfect, but they have been in right relationships with God and right relationships with the community around them. Philip Ryken says, you might... You might think of them as an old pastor, old country pastor and his wife. 
nearing the age of retirement. They're full of gracious wisdom and compassionate life experience. Just faithful saints who have an approved walk with God. There's only one cloud that has persistently kind of cast a shadow over their happiness that has spoiled, if you like, a life of fruitful ministry. And Luke writes that Elizabeth was barren. It's a sentence that brings instant sadness to the listener, to anyone who knows what it is to long for a child. But it's also a condition that was the cause of much naive and poor theologically motivated treatment of Elizabeth. Added to the personal heartache, to the disappointment of not being able to have uh, a child of their own was the social stigma attached to this. Barrenness was often uh, considered to be a sign of God's displeasure, to be a sign of God's judgment over an unrighteous life, over, over an ungodly action. Not that, not that that is all that, uh, 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 what is the word, um, prolific in the Bible. It's quite rare to find case studies in this. But isn't that the way? That our selfish, for selfish reasons, we like to point out the possibility of faults in others to avoid, uh, actually addressing the ones that we know exist in us. However, this couple's righteousness shows that this barrenness was not a result of anything to do with God's judgment. Rather, Luke is preparing us to see that God had planned for it, had planned for something special, for something miraculous. Uh, for God's glory and for their joy, for our joy. God was not punishing, but planning a miracle that would alert people to something new, to something marvelous, that would prepare people for God's pl- prepared plan of salvation. You know, suffering and affliction are rarely, if at all, ever signs of God's, uh, judgment. You are personally. And it's poor theology. It's doctrinal cruelty and it reduces the cross to nothing when we begin to say otherwise. Most of the time, suffering, affliction uh, is due to poor choices that we may make or the poor choices or actions of others or just due to the decay and brokenness of life in a sin-ravaged world. The only connection between suffering and faith that we should make is our approach. And that's what we learn from Elizabeth, is an approach to suffering. She never asks, you know, what have I done to deserve this? What have we done to deserve this? But rather, they they get about, how do we glorify God in this? How do we live faithfully for God in this? They didn't wait for a child to come along before they felt their life was complete or fulfilled. They found that in actually serving God. It's a beautiful picture and not one that Luke wants us to miss. Well, Luke whisks us out of the mutual ministry of the home and into uh, the priest Zachariah's ministry where he's serving before God. He's carrying out his, uh, his week's duties at the temple. And Zachariah, we learn, is chosen by Lot. That is essentially chosen by God to enter into the holy place and to burn incense on the altar there. While the other priests all remain outside, all the priests and the people remain outside and they're, they're praying in the temple courts. Now, to be chosen to go into the holy place and to pour out the, the offering of incense onto these burning coals burning away there on the altar uh, on behalf of Israel to offer up prayers was a great honour. Indeed, this would have been the high point of any priest's career, certainly of Zacharias, 
This would be the apex of Zachariah's uh, personal history and unrepeatable privilege. Uh, Once you'd been uh, selected to do this, you could no longer ever be selected to do again. It was something that a lot of priests never actually got the opportunity uh, to do, and Zachariah probably certainly thought it had passed by him. Try to picture this moment. As once Zachariah leaves uh, the outer courts there where everyone's praying and he moves his way into the holy place. Uh, two assistants come with him and one's bringing a bowl of burning coals and the other one's holding uh, the, the offering of incense. And they place the burning coals on the altar and they give the incense to Zachariah and they leave. And Zachariah is alone there in the holy place. Uh, the curtain before him, before you go into the Holy of Holies. And he's waiting for the bell to ring to signal to him to pour the incense over these coals. That would symbolize the the presence of God like like the pillar of smoke that rises up. It would symbolize the prayers of, of him and Israel. And there's Zechariah. He's the mediator between the people and God in the presence of God praying for the salvation and the arrival of a Messiah. It's about as close as a person can get to the, to the presence of God. Only the, only the high priest would actually have a ritual presence greater than this. It's a distinguishing moment. And maybe, maybe just as Zachariah is there, he takes a moment to, to have a brief per, time of personal uh, prayer before he leaves. Um, the priest was not expected to stay long. Uh, he performed his duties uh, and he got out. To stay long was to be considered uh, self-indulgent or even worse, that something had gone wrong. Maybe maybe he'd been struck dead for inappropriate approach. And just as Zachariah turns to leave, God in his goodness chooses uh, this important moment in Zachariah's life and his career to make a divine moment in salvation history. And here Luke begins to tell us about the child. Luke tells us at the high moment of proceedings, God intervenes in a fresh way to announce the long-awaited redemption of humanity. And it will take place by God sending a forerunner, a child that will be born to Zachariah and Elizabeth. As if this moment couldn't get any bigger for Zachariah, uh, he's confronted by an angel bringing good news, great news of God's salvation that will bring joy uh, into his life personally, but also bring rejoicing and joy into the lives of many others. Now, contra to popular misconceptions, angels are extraordinarily rare in scripture as they are in life. So when they turn up, it's important and it's also terrifying. And Zachariah is overcome with anxiety and fear. The last thing he actually expected was a personal response to his prayer. Aren't we the same sometimes? We do a lot of praying for stuff, but are we genuinely prepared or expecting God to actually turn up in, in real ways and visit us in our lives? Perhaps not like this with an angel, but, but in meeting our prayers. Well, the angel does what angels do, and that is to reassure the audience that, that they are not about to die. Rather, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. God has been listening, and in his timing and in his mercy, he is about to act. And here's how it's going to go down. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you will call him John. Which means God has been gracious. God has shown favor. It's a nice touch, isn't it? 
and you will have gladness and many will rejoice at the birth for he will be great before the Lord. A reassuring thing to have said about your kids. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the spirit even from his mother's womb, which tells us something about the integrity of life in the womb. In other words, this child is set apart from by God uh, from the moment of conception to do something very special, to be empowered by the Spirit to do something very wonderful. And here's why. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit of, of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You know, most of us focus on the beautiful grace uh, toward an old faithful couple by giving them a son. The years of personal prayer have been answered, that a lifetime of stigma is washed away in this beautiful moment, and that is true. But here's what Zechariah actually just heard, because he's not in there uh, merely praying for a child for him and Elizabeth. He is in there to pray for the redemption of Israel, for the redemption of God's people, that God would act on their behalf, that God would deliver them, that God would send a saviour to rescue his people from oppression. And that is the prayer that God has heard. And that is, and in his time, he is now responding to it. However, as is the way with God, he sweeps up into uh, his story of grace, the most unlikely characters to be living examples of how his redemptive grace in the world works. It brings joy and gladness uh, into personal lives as it goes along, not just in a general sense, but in a personal sense. God's activity will take away the dark cloud of their lives and they will have joy. And gladness, but the son, this son John, that brings them joy is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, exercising a prophetic ministry that impacts many. Uh, it's been 400 years since a figure like this walked the earth. Now their son John will be used by God to turn many hearts around, to turn many hearts from darkness to joy, from sadness to rejoicing be used to prepare people for the message of Jesus, the message that Jesus will bring about himself. The angel paints this picture of restored families as fathers begin to once again instruct and train their children and their families uh, about God, uh, how he restores culture uh, from a disobedience towards God to wisdom as hearts turn back to God in preparation for his saving work to come. It's a powerful picture of the fulfillment of the words of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, and of Isaiah 40. It's a picture of ultimate salvation that begins with a son being born from a barren womb. It's a beautiful picture of how God responds to Zechariah's prayer for salvation. We'll begin with the miraculous healing, the miraculous reversal of a barren womb. It's a picture of the reversal and the restoration of all things, of all things being turned upside down to make them right side up in a way that any parent, that actually no parent, no priest, no person could ever dare dream of. It's miraculous good news. It's the grace of God breaking into human history. Luke records for us then the response of Zechariah to this. 
Well, this news is far more wonderful than you could ever imagine. It's far more wonderful for Zachariah to believe, maybe. And in the strangest and most surprising turn of events, that is exactly how Zachariah responds, with disbelief. And this disbelief is all to do with his own resources and capabilities, or maybe his wives. Like God's great plan of salvation is all going to be derailed because Zachariah and Elizabeth aren't the virile young scamps that they used to once be. Zachariah needs a sign to give him certainty. He wants more evidence if an angel isn't enough. The rather incredulous tone and rebuke of the angel Gabriel lets us know that Zachariah's response is leaning more toward uh, disbelief than just merely needing more clarification, as is the case with Mary. It's staggering given the description of this couple. However, it's the human element in a divine moment. It's also the stamp of historic authenticity. You don't write this kind of negative, this kind of uncomfortable uh, detail into a story unless, of course, it actually did happen. There's another reason for the presence of doubt by Zechariah. His doubt helps confront ours. His doubt helps prepare our hearts for faith. The good news of salvation was delivered by an angel, no less. And it came from the very mouth of God straight to Zechariah's ear to fulfill an ancient promise. But rather than hear it for what it was, for good news, Zechariah asked for a more impressive sign. It seems that in his heart, Zechariah didn't really expect God to be God. We don't know why. Maybe years of quietness from God has made this faithful heart hard. In a way that God has just become a deity to serve rather than a father to know. Life can make faith like that. Yes, God is good. Yes, he's loving and he's faithful. But it's become more in a general sense, not in a particular sense, not in a personal sense. Or maybe the idea that God would do some act in his lifetime toward him just seemed improbable. God's a big picture guy. He's not an intimate, personal kind of a God. And when he acts, it'll all be big picture. It's not just the virility that's lost its mojo. In this very revealing confrontation, the things that that Zechariah had prayed for is the very thing that God turns up and says he would do becomes the very thing that Zechariah doubts God will do. Zechariah needs his heart to be melted. He needs his heart to be rearranged with grace. The man without a child could simply not believe this gospel, this good news from Gabriel. And because of his unbelief, the man without a child now becomes the man without a voice. And this is where grace begins. This is where faith is built. Gabriel contrasts Zachariah's reasons for doubt against his reasons for faith. God sent him. Like that should be enough. And now God would give Zechariah a sign he'd ask for. He will make him unable to speak and unable to hear until the birth of John. It's kind of an amusing scene, I imagine, as Zechariah finally emerges from the holy place, rather than the crowning moment when he would pray a blessing over the nation, over the gathering of God's people who are there uh, praying as he fulfills his duties. 
He's more like a desperate charades character, all arms and facial expressions, not been able to communicate exactly what's taken place. The privilege in ministry has been suspended until doubt is replaced by faith. I think even more amusing would have been uh, Zachariah trying to explain to Elizabeth what happened. I'm not sure what the sign language is for uh, God made me deaf, now we have to go and make a baby. Nevertheless, they get it sorted. And over the next nine months, as that child grows, so does the faith of Zechariah. God is gracious and provides environments uh, to, for faith to grow, and provides environments for, for doubting hearts to be remade with grace. And maybe that's why they stay behind locked doors for five months. I don't know. They just want to renew their love for God because he has answered their personal prayers. Not just in taking away Elizabeth's reproach among the people, not just in bringing gladness into their home, but announcing good news of salvation, that their son would be the one who would prepare the hearts of the people in, in a way to receive the ultimate good news of salvation from God in Jesus. Maybe God is just simply saying to Zechariah, Just go home and get to know me again. Your heart's been so consumed with the the doing and the business of being a Christian. Maybe you just need to reacquaint yourself with me. You know, when we hear extraordinary news of what God has done in human history to turn our hearts towards him, do we doubt its credibility? Do we ask for more evidence because uh, what we hear just seems too good to be true, doesn't fit into our categories, uh, doesn't fit into our limited view of how the universe operates? When our faith is challenged by long periods of suffering and unanswered prayer, does our affection grow cold for God? What's our approach to God like in these times? There's another figure in this story and Luke does not want to miss him at all. Luke wants us to see that God is the main reality in all stories. Luke wants us to see that God is working in human history so that he can interrupt human history, interrupt the human soul and turn it upside down and warm it with affection for him. God has brought salvation into human history through Jesus and he can bring the human soul into salvation so that we might have the faith of a mountain range rather than just a passing cloud. God is the main reality in the universe, Luke is letting us know. He's the main reality in history. God is the main reality in this good news. Over ten times God is mentioned in this passage. He is the all-planning, all-pervasive, all-powerful, and he acts in human history so we can know him, so that we can know him personally, like a mountain range, unshakable, immovable, never-changing, ever-reliant continuously gracious towards those who doubt, giving them scope for faith. Maybe all your life, God has been preparing your heart to finally be melted by the good news that will come in the rest of this gospel. The good news that John, this child, will point to, that God loves and heals and restores all people through the ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a story we don't want to miss, and I pray you stay tuned. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this 
incredible moment of personal and um, a universal grace, if you like, where you begin to act in human history and you do it in the lives of broken people. And as your message of grace that restores the world comes, you restore all those who are in this story. And what we get is a picture of a loving God in a broken world. And we give you thanks for that. And we lift up our lives, we lift up our hearts to you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.